connecting those points in a relatively succinct way, like being able to tell a story that doesn't wander, that keeps people tracking and still surprises them. I think that's one of the hardest aspects of storytelling. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. My next guest on Raise 1000 Voices is the fabulous Dr. Angela E. Laurier. She is the founder of the Author Incubator and creator of the Difference Process for writing a book that matters. In 2018, the Author Incubator was ranked number 275 on the Inc. 500 Fastest Growing Companies list and at number 60 on Entrepreneur Magazine's Entrepreneur 360. Dr. Angela won the Stevie Awards Coach Mentor of the Year and her program, The Author's Way, was named Coaching Program of the Year. And she was named by Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the top 10 most inspiring entrepreneurs to watch, one of only two women on that list. Dr. Angela has been helping people free their inner author since 1994, helping more than a thousand authors write, publish and promote their books. Her clients have been seen everywhere from Vanity Fair to O Magazine to the Today Show, and her books have been responsible for generating over $100 million in cumulative revenue. But for you and I, this is a fun, fun conversation. Dr. Angela is a phenomenal book coach and publisher, absolutely, but she literally vibrates story and storytelling sharing with us how it allowed her to stay connected with the world when she was younger and open opportunities she could never have planned. This conversation wanders from the magic of stories through Hot Rod Hall of Fame, what makes an incredible level of intimacy, her shock that her roommate's father hated his job at insurance, and an obsession with Crowded House that took her around the world. This conversation is surprising and delightful, as well as delivering an incredible insight into just what brings a story to life and a book worth writing. Right now, I would love to welcome Angela Laurier to the next conversation in Raise 1000 Voices. Angela, for the people around the world who haven't met you yet, where in the world are you right now? Right now, I am in Washington, D.C. So, yeah. Amazing. This little Aussie was actually there probably about 20 years ago, one of my favorite places in the inner enclave. Walking the streets of Washington, great time. I was going to tell you, I used I lived in Australia about twenty years ago. So, oh, about the same time as I was tripping around the US. I was there. (laughs) And what part of Australia were you in? So I lived in Melbourne. I live near the Frankston Peninsula, down near beautiful Chelsea, that area. Really, oh, really pretty. Yeah, you picked one of our better spots. That's for sure. Well, I don't know. People complain about the rain in Melbourne. So yeah, (laughs) people complain about the weather. Full stop in Melbourne, but it's beautiful. There's no denying how gorgeous the whole area is. Um, so Angela, I connected into your world recently because of your professional capacity as an incredible book coach and curator of story. 
what I'd love to know in story form almost is who Angela is in her own words and how you got to be who and where you are right now. Well, that's very interesting because what comes up for me is that I am a reader and I was going to say I'm a born reader, but God, it almost feels like that. So I'm hyperlexic. I started reading before I was five. I wrote my first book when I was five. Wow. Mm -hmm. What was the book about? Can I ask? Well, it's very interesting because it was about a marriage, but I couldn't spell marriage. So I called the book the wedding because I could spell wedding. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember being really mad that the book had the wrong name because I knew it was the marriage and not the wedding. And then when I was nine, this is one of my favorite forms of storytelling. I found the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yes. Yes. And what I did, and it was before, I don't know, probably wasn't before Excel. I think it was before Excel. Anyway, I (laughs) I invented a spreadsheet. I didn't know what a spreadsheet was. It certainly didn't. But I got these Choose Your Own Adventure box sets. And then I would map out all the possible endings and I had them on like note cards and wow, constructed how they made the books. And I started (gasps) writing choose your own adventure books when I was in middle school. I think you just became my favorite human. I was obsessed with them as a young girl as well. It was so fun. Oh my God. I love those books. And I had to know every possible outcome. So I would read like that one book for so long. And I just remember my mom just, Angela, stop reading. (laughs) (laughs) He's always in a book. And then when I was in eighth grade, I wrote a book, which now I can't remember the name of. I don't know why. But the first sentence was a question to ponder once more and forever. I don't know why I was like pondering so deeply at 13, but so writing and reading have always been intertwined for me Yeah, and they've always been how I most connected with the world Yeah, was through story and through books, which were always safer to me than people. And the other thing I, which I think is probably crazy to admit, I've never admitted this in public before. But I do always read the endings first. Oh, you're one of those readers. See, I'm a prolific reader. And like you, I my safety was in books growing up. It was my escape. It was my ability to dream about different things. It was a doorway to alternate worlds to where I was living. So I loved books. But I'm also, I'm on the opposite side to you. I'm like, I you do not read the ending first. <laughs> So like, to me, the thing about stories, I think for a lot of people, great storytelling is about the element of surprise. Yeah. But to me, it's about the element of connection and being in the moment. And when I'm thinking about the ending, I can't be present for the details. Wow. Okay. I want to be able to like, feel things but if I'm wondering about what's going to happen you're actually present where you are right now yeah yeah wow whereas I'm I get very present to the wonder and the mystery so it's kind of it's interesting as to how it plays out even though we're both obviously prolific readers I didn't write books when I was younger but I was crazy and I think that's what my obsession with storytelling is now because 
it's magical. The power in a story is magical. So then that was in high school. What was the pathway from there? So no surprise there. I majored in journalism. (laughs) I wanted to be an investigative reporter. Oh, Um, wow. And I did my my very first job, which I got senior year, like just before I was about to graduate from university. I got a job for as a researcher for one of the top investigative journalists, Pulitzer Prize winner, amazing New York Times bestselling author, and started working on books before I had even graduated. I was still 20. I was about a week from turning 21 when I got my first job in publishing. What an amazing first job. I know. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you a story. Yeah, great. Uh, We're all about stories. This is one of my favorite stories. So I grew up, my dad is, my dad makes 1927 to 1934 Ford replicas. So he's a car guy. And he fell in love with cars when he was about 12 years old. And so he got a shoe shine kit and would stand on the steps of St. Mary's Church in New Haven, Connecticut. And when people would come out of church, and there's a lot of Italian Catholics in New Haven, so they would go to church every day. So you yeah. go to school, they'd go to mass, and they'd walk out, and my dad would shine their shoes, and they would give him a nickel. My dad saved up all his nickels in his shoe shine box, and when he turned 16, he bought his first car, which was a 1932 Ford, and he restored it. And he sold it. He did manage to graduate from high school, although he thought it was stupid because he was already ready. Making money. (laughs) Doing his thing in the world. Yeah. (laughs) He started his business right when he first graduated from high school, restoring old cars and ultimately making new model kit cars. And he's in the Hot Rod Hall of Fame and very successful career as a business owner and entrepreneur. And so what I thought growing up No one told me this, but growing up, I thought by the time you're 12, 12 to 16, you'll figure out what you love most in the world. And then you'll get a job doing that and you'll make lots of money. Well, you were role modeled perfectly by your father, weren't you? I had no idea anyone did anything until I was 21. Yeah. When I was 21, I had a roommate. Her name is Stephanie. And it was her dad, her dad was having a retirement party and he worked at Aetna, which is a life insurance, health insurance, insurance company. And so he was in his late fifties. So it was like an early retirement and I didn't know what he was going to do next, but he was super into like mountain biking and outdoorsy stuff. So we went to the retirement party. And at some point during the party, I said, Mr. Inglis, I'm so curious when did you know that you loved insurance? And he kind of laughed and, you know, patted me on the head. And he, (laughs) thanks for coming to my retirement party. But he never gave me an answer. So we're in the car on the way home. And I'm like, Stephanie, your dad never told me. When did he fall in love with insurance? How did it happen? She's like, Angela, my dad hated his job every day of his life. Why do you think he's retiring early? And I'm like, blown. your dad hated his job. She's like, do you think I like my job as a waitress at Bill Bateman's? People do jobs they don't love. And the whole way home, I was like, we have to stop this. I <laughs> no idea until I was 
21 that people didn't just do what they loved and make lots of money doing it. I thought that's what everyone was doing. I just love the pure innocence of that and the fact that that was actually how you blew into the world. Like there is, that is an extraordinary gift for you to have entered the world in. So what happened once you realized that? Uh, I don't know. I kept writing books. So (laughs) you kept with what Uh, you love to make money. (laughs) I think, yeah. So I worked on books and a lot of times there's a lull between books. Yeah. So you'll do a book and then it launches and then you're kind of waiting for your next project. And I mentioned earlier that I had lived in Australia. What I didn't say is when I was there, I became a huge fan of the band Crowded House. Oh, and so, you're allowed uh, to stay. Is an Australian band, but the lead singer is from New Zealand. So I ended up spending the next five years on the road with Crowded House as what's known as a finhead. Um, Are you serious? So, yeah, I'm a Crowded House groupie. Oh, wow. A serious groupie. No. If you watch the Farewell to the World concert, you will see me in the front row crying through most of it. There are several close-ups. And so what I did was I traveled the world and went to Crowded House shows. So whatever their concert tour was, and I would stay with other Crowded House fans. And there's a thing if you're really into a band where you like get there early and meet the other fans. And sometimes you go to sound check and especially if it's general admission, like I always am in the front row. So you get there super early, like, yeah, you know, in the morning. Yeah. And every time I would go to a concert, I would end up getting a job as a ghostwriter or promoting a book or at, like once I was on the tube from London and I got this really big job working for Clark's Shoes. So I did a coffee table book for them and they sent me all around the world to stand outside of Clark's shoes and ask people for their first memory of Clark's shoes, like, and people would tell their school shoe stories. So I put together this coffee table book for the 105th anniversary of Clark's shoes and they sent me around the world, but I timed it with a crowded house schedule. (laughs) I love your work. (laughs) And then I go sit at, you know, in front of shoe stores and meet people and talk about their school shoes. and. Wherever I went, I went to Uluru once and I met a guy from Philadelphia at Uluru who hired me to write a book on finance in Hong Kong. That is literally bizarre. It's so bizarre, but I thought it happened to everyone. I thought (laughs) my career felt like dog walking. Like I was, I was just a girl that was into a band that would go to concerts and then while I was there, I would pick up odd jobs, job. like books. Amazing. Amazing. I 29 books that way. That's incredible. And that, yep. that is like literally, I feel as though that's literally, you've been living the life that we're all trying to encourage each other to do now, which is just lean into where the world takes you. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Went so, to a lot of concerts, wrote a lot of books, and and I was a I didn't know I was a laptop. What do we call it? Laptop lifestyle. Laptop, no. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Didn't have that name. No, I no website. I didn't know what a lead magnet was. I didn't have a, like I didn't have a funnel. I didn't know what the hell. Uh, was. You're actually describing bliss right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to concerts, and then people would hire me to write books. So what was your re-entry back into the world outside of Crowded House? So when I was just about to turn 40, kind of one of the 
refrains in my life was what am I going to be when I grow up? Cause I didn't feel like I ever got a job. Yeah. So I was like, at some point I have to like get a real job. And I did do a PhD in philosophy and I got a job as a professor and I did it for a year and two months. I actually dropped out two months into the second semester because it was so miserable. Yeah. And I was a terrible professor and I hated it, but I had done a PhD. So I felt like I was supposed to do it. And yeah. then I got called to do another book from a, an author I'd worked with before. And so I was like, I'm just going to quit this job as a professor and write another book. Amazing. So, that was, yeah, that, but it was part of a very big shame spiral of like, why haven't I figured out my life? I've paid all this money uh, to do, yeah, I'm supposed to be a professor. How come me, I should have gone to law school. I haven't yeah. done anything with my life. I have no, I'm almost 40 years old. I have no money. I have no savings. I, what am I going to be when I grow up? I should get a real job. And it's so, amazing how fast that takes hold, isn't it? Once you start that internal, and we talk about this a lot, the internal stories, the inner critic, you know, which is actually birthed from the best place of us, which is our inner voice. But when it flips into that spiral and that negative chatter, it just takes hold so fast. So how did you pull back out of that? Well, I found a book, not surprisingly, yeah. and it yeah. was called Finding Your Own North Star by Martha Beck, yeah. who is a life coach, although I don't know that she was when I got that book. She's a memoirist. Yeah. Now coaches, has a life coach training. And so I did that book. I didn't just buy it. I didn't just read it, but I did every exercise as if I had hired a coach. Yeah. I did absolutely every single thing and most of it multiple times. Um, I probably have it here somewhere. And one of the questions, which I thought was very stupid, was what do you lose track of time doing? And I was like writing books, reading books, talking to my friends about books. This is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and everything in there, I'm like, but like who you can't make money. That's not like a career. Yeah. And Every single question I did when I bought the book, I had this idea that I wanted to be a personal injury attorney. Oh, and really? I, and, and what I searched on Google was books like, what color is your parachute? Yeah. Like I wanted a quiz to tell me was being a personal injury attorney a good choice? Yeah. And it, yeah, I ended up with this thing and it was like, what do you do naturally? What do you do? Lose track of time doing? What have you always done? What do you always find work doing whether you want to or not? And everything led back to books. But I'm like, yeah. that's like walking. That's not a real job. Like that makes no sense. And so then Martha Beck had this event and it was called Martha Beck's Dream Writers Workshop. And it was actually a memoir writing workshop. Oh, wow. And I went to it. And there were three people running the event. So it was Martha, it was her editor, Betsy, and then Susan Hyatt, who some of your listeners yeah, yeah. might know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were 24 people, including me, in the audience. By the time I left there, Martha, Susan, and the 23 other attendees had all hired me. Basically, everybody except for Betsy had hired me. And I was basically running the event by the last day because it was the weirdest event. There, were, It was like, I'm like, you people didn't know how to write books that were running the event. They had, I mean, Martha had written books, 
Yeah, but, but not actually teaching others how to do it. Yes. And I was like, well, I'm like, here's what I do. And so I was like holding court at this event. I wasn't trying to. And I was at the time had another ghostwriting job. I was ghostwriting computer books. And so as like a side hustle, I didn't know the word side hustle, but I used to help. I helped Martha market her books. I helped. I published Susan's first book, worked with the other members on books and articles and writing and web copy and emails. And those were my first clients. I didn't know I was starting a business. I didn't know to start. Yes. (laughs) And is that, that was the genesis of what you're doing now? That it's, it's basically the same thing. So that event was in October of 2010. I still had a full-time job until, and wasn't really trying to start a business. It just demanded me. Yep. Yeah. Then I started my business in full-time. I quit my job and started my business full-time in February of 2013. Okay. So two and a half years that I had a side hustle and yeah. then eventually I just had too much work and had to make a choice. And that's yeah. when the author incubator was born. So I started Difference Press in 2010, which yes. is my publishing imprint and published a bunch of those authors that were at that event and then started coaching full time in 2013. So. so since 2013, what's been the favorite part of that journey? In the last nine years? Hmm. I mean, I am a completist. So Mm. the thing I'm most proud of is Mm. that we have well over a 99% completion rate. So Wow. I want the audience to listen to that. That's phenomenal. Yeah, we just we say this, but we it's like not hype. We say we don't hold space for failure. And we really don't like everybody finishes. It's just almost impossible not to finish. So weirdly, we've had two authors not finish so far this year. And both of them were put into medically induced comas. Uh, So you're letting, you're letting them off. Are you letting them off? So, I mean, no, they don't finish, but (laughs) so I guess they have to be not in a coma to finish. Yeah, possibly. Possibly for the book to have traction, more than likely. <laughs> yes, as long as you can avoid being put into a medically induced coma, you will finish. And that's the thing I'm most proud of. I love, and I had such an amazing full circle moment this year, but we've had 26 people that have become millionaires with their books. We've published about 2,000 books, about 26 millionaires. And one of them, when I was completely surprised, but one of them actually joined Boardroom which is with my mastermind. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. My mastermind with my coach. So that was kind of exciting to see one of my clients reach that level. um, Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a really fine distinction as well. One of the reasons I first connected with you was I wanted to bring someone into my world for my clients who were thinking about writing a book to know that if they went down that pathway, it would actually happen. And that was Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we connected. So in previous conversation that we've had, we've talked about stories. What makes a phenomenal story? What makes a story bankable, backable, gets Angela's attention? Well, I would say there's two things I'm primarily looking for. And one of them is sadly the hardest. And that is a beginning, a middle and an end. Okay. So 
I the second thing everyone's really good at, and that's great characters and great details. Yeah. So a lot of times people come to me with great characters, great details, and they don't have a beginning and middle and an end. And so like when I told that story about my dad and the shoe shine, that story always starts on the steps of St. Mary's. That's yeah. my dad at 12 years old. And it always ends in the car with me discovering Stephanie also didn't like Bill Bateman's. That detail is important because it's not just one guy didn't like his job. It was the second one that I realized, oh, my God, this is the whole I'm the rarity. Yeah. Yeah. It has like my dad as the outlier at 12, but I can't see that. It's like this family story. There's an element of surprise, but there's that beginning the middle, which is we yeah. find out that, you know, the middle, the middle part is where I realize, oh, I love books. I will make lots of money doing books. And I do. And then the end, which is that conclusion, those three elements are usually missing. People have the dad and they have the, the shoe shine box and St. Mary's and they've got Stephanie's father and Aetna life insurance, and they could describe the building, but connecting those points in a relatively succinct way. I was able to tell that story in like three to five minutes. Yeah. Like being able to tell a story that doesn't wander, that keeps people tracking and still surprises them. I think that's one of the hardest aspects of storytelling. Yeah. Well, you know, I teach people how to speak to either their expertise or their lived experience. And it's the same thing. People quite often have, you know, they can throw rocks at a problem. And they can promise the world and paint a beautiful future vision, TED Talk style, but they can't actually take people on the journey between the two. And that's that's the connective tissue. And it's like you don't give all the detail, but you've got to drop them into moments that connect it on a through line that makes sense, that they can logically follow. So I'm really, really so excited. Like to my clients that are listening, Angela just backed me up on that one, guys. <laughs> to an author today who is a social worker at a hospital. Mm. And she was like, I'm a social worker at a hospital. I work on pediatric end of life issues. So I'm like, okay, those are very few words. I got it. Yeah. And then she started talking more and she's like, I have so many stories to tell. I want to tell stories of resilience. I want to write about self-care. I want to help families, Uh but all the things children and it's so siblings can work through it. But mostly this is for first responders, healthcare providers and hospital systems, because there's so much racial injustice. I'm a social worker of color. And so there's injustice built into the system that makes it harder for, and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. All good. I land something, land something. But it's like, okay, sister, we got a corral. It's a lot of corralling data. And I think when you are an expert, in some ways, it's even harder to tell good stories or present your information in a speech or in a book because she clearly had 30 years of experience, like systematic injustice, resilient, amazing families, chicken soup for the soul. There's like loss and grief and processing and first responders making big mistakes and storytelling. Like she's got all of that. That's not a book. That's your life. Oh, I love that. Can we just repeat that? That's not a book. It's not a book. That's your life. And it's wonderful. (sighs) 
Yes. But your book. book has to be a teeny tiny sliver and you have to curate that. that yeah. Just tell me everything about the last 30 years of your life. Mm. So I think that's hard for people to separate like what's useful in a book, what's useful in a speech, what's useful in a story from holy shit, a lot has happened the last 30 years. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because one of the things that, and I'm, I'm not allowed to say this apparently on YouTube as a video title, but one of my things when I'm working with people to get their presentations clear and their speeches clear is sometimes you have to kill your favorite children. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, the stories you're really attached to don't actually serve a purpose for your audience. They and yeah, my team were horrified. They're like, I know you said in the workshops, but we can't put that on social. I'm like, yeah, I get that. But the concept is you get so attached to these things and these stories and they're not in service to anyone but yourself, you know? And that probably brings me to a question I wanted to ask. And that is, and I know that we've had some conversation around this. What actually makes a story worthy of a book? Hmm. Well, I would say it all comes down to the reader. Mm. So for me, a book is an act of service for a reader. And I base everything on a book called Letters to a Young Poet by a poet named Maria Rayner Rilke. And Rilke was writing letters to a guy named Franz Kafis. And this became a book. But if you read it right now, if you flip to any random page, like go on Google, type Letters to a Young Poet, read any quote, it will feel like he is talking directly to you and only you right now. And he for sure wasn't. So when we have that level of intimacy, when we're talking to one person, it translates to everyone. But when you try and talk to everyone, like I would say bad storytelling would be Wikipedia. Yeah. (laughs) So great information giving, but bad storytelling. Wikipedia is for everyone. And so it like it's for no one. You never like get stuck on a Wikipedia page and want to linger on it and read it a few times. Like you're just like, what year was she born? Right. Yeah. So a story is told from the heart as what I would say a love letter. And you Mm. can write it badly. You can even tell it badly. But if you're telling it to be performative or you're telling it to make a point or you're telling it to make yourself feel good, it won't work. But even if you do it wrong, if you're doing it for the reader and you know, what am I trying to convey to the reader? What is my gift to the reader? You can make a million mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that because performative storytelling, I think is the antithesis of connection. I think it's the very opposite of connection. It does the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're actually looking or starting to work with someone like the social worker you just spoke about, you're doing that initial conversation. Do you often find surprising bits that are actually the story that they don't realize is the story? Yeah. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I actually get them to like, we do a neuroscience brainstorming technique, which pulls out all of the back cobwebs to get those out because then it's like no judgment, no preconception. We don't know what you're going to talk about yet. Just get everything out that you've ever wanted to say, you've ever taught and the coffee questions and what you'd fight for and the coffee questions particularly And I'm actually looking at your cup going, I think I need to get one of those off you. (laughs) So good. So the, I'm really big on, I know what you come to me with, but that's not always the gold. So talk me through that. Like what are, what are people, what's the mistake they make in believing that this is a story and then you're listening to them and you're like, no, that's the story. Can we go there now? 
Yeah. Well, the biggest mistake people make is they try and come up with what the story is. And you are yeah. probably the least equipped to do that. And and even me, I yeah. even need to get coached on my stuff. I'm not saying it's because you're bad at coming up with what your book is. But most people, including everyone listening, probably including you, is always thinking of what should my book be? Oh, maybe that should be my book. And yeah. it's the absolute wrong question to start with. Mm. And one of the things I do with my clients is I won't take a client who won't agree to follow my process because my process works backwards. We will get to what your book is, but we don't start there. So tell me where you start, because I love this part of what you do with all my heart. Yeah. So we start with, first of all, what do you want your book to do for you? Like, why are you doing this? What's your why? Start with why, Simon Sinek, blah, blah, blah. But it is really important because there are different books. Let's say you want to write about gardening. There are many different ways we could write a book on gardening. We could write a gardening memoir. We could write a gardening how-to. We can write a lot of different books on gardening, gardening for kids, gardening for beginners, gardening for very experienced people, gardening in the winter, white gardens. Like there's so many books we could write, but understanding what you want this book to do is key. And most people's answer is everything. Yeah. It's I interesting. You and speaking gigs and I want to sell things and I want to be asked to speak and I want to be on panels and, and everything gets you nothing. Yeah. I really love this. You'll see, and obviously our listeners can't see, but in the background, you'll see I've got glass blue apples, right? And we have a thing called a blue apple strategy. So they're on my bookshelves. And we have a thing called blue apple strategy. And it starts with what's the topic and not the headline, just what is it that you want to speak about? Mm -hmm. And the first question that throws most people is, why does this matter to you? Like, Mm because we've been so conditioned to go straight to audience, but I'm like, if you can't work out why this matters to you, I can't get resonance into your story. I can't get resonance into your voice. And so it's interesting because that to me is the foundation. If we can't get why it matters to you, and it's kind of almost like that aha moment where they realize why this matters and the one thing they want to land. If I can't get that, we can't get an amazing speech out, you know, yeah. because because we don't yeah. get resonance. I use a technique that I learned from Martha Beck actually called the five whys. Because I'll say, why do you want to write this book? And people will be, say, to help people. And like, <laughs> the universal well-paced. <laughs> they got it. So, but then we have to go five whys deep. Why do you yeah. want to help? Why yeah. on this? Why? Like, and I keep saying why, and we get to the actual thing. What's the thing they want? And I will tell you, frankly, for a lot of my clients, this will lead to a lot of tears, a lot yeah. of resistance. Yeah. And this is why their book isn't getting written. And then at the end, what they say is like, often some version of I want to have more financial success or I want to be more well-known. I want to have more followers. I want to have a bigger impact. Like, but saying that, admitting that instead of saying, if this book just helps one person, I'm happy. I'm like, well, then don't fucking do it. Oh my God, I am so with you. It's like people say, so I wrote an article about this recently because, oh, sorry, I shouldn't get so excited, but I'm so like, because I actually said, it's like, it's your get out of jail free card of Monopoly. Like, it's like, oh, if I only have to, if I can only impact one person, if I can make a difference, like bullshit, play big big or go home. Right. right. You know, like if you're going to actually invest in putting yourself out there, getting your thoughts out there, getting it into story, getting it so it's inhalable and consumable, 
don't let yourself off the hook because then you get one piece of good feedback. You go, oh, job done. Right. Right. You know, um, we had um, at a recent professional speaking event, we had Alan Peace, who's one of the most successful and prolific writers and speakers in Australia. And he was just sitting having conversation. And he said, you know what's wrong with most people writing a book right now or writing a book in this era or speaking is that they're not saying, I'm only interested in writing a book that becomes number one. Mm-hmm. He said, everyone is saying, I need to write a book. He said, but every time I wrote a book, I'm only interested in what's going to make my book number one. Yeah. And I was just like sitting there going, yes. Sorry, I'm really passionate about this. Like if you're going to invest in this, go all in. Yeah. And I want to say like, I work primarily with women. Yeah. And I feel like because we do as a gender take on a lot, often we're balancing like career and maybe a second job and kids. I was a single mom. I had a part-time job. I had a full-time job. Like I get it, but we like to leave a little opening to let ourselves off the hook because we're it's so- like it's like we walk into a room a client who became a friend described it to me it's like we're always walking into a room scanning and making sure we know where the exit doors are mm-hmm. and when she used that metaphor I was like oh that is it like we yeah. are because we're always having to look after everyone around us and keep everybody safe we actually condition ourselves to walk into any room physical or metaphorical and we're already scanning for the exit signs and that's what I think that if this just what makes a difference to one person, that's what I think we're doing. We're like you just said, we're leaving fudge room, right? Oh, if it doesn't work, it's okay because it didn't really mean that much. No, make it mean something. Make it mean something. Yeah. Put yourself there. I do think that makes the book better. Yeah. But also if it means you don't write it, then fine. Yeah. Like I don't think everyone has to write a book. No. Like some some stories should hit the cutting room floor. Yeah. A lot of people come to me. I mean, I reject far more people than I take as do most, you know, not necessarily most book coaches, but most agents, like we have to be selective about the projects we work on. And frankly, a lot of books are great journals. Yeah. People come to me and they're like, I have 20 years of journals. I'm like, keep them that way and put pretty bows on them so that hopefully your grandchildren will open them and read them. And have an amazing Christmas when they read all your old journals. Like, yeah. That would be great. But actually, one of the yeah, in one of the recent episodes we did, we actually talked about. Well, I talked about the fact that not every story is meant for a platform. We've become yeah. so obsessed right now with telling story, telling story, and we've lost sight of the fact that not every story is meant to make it to a platform, right? Yeah. You know, and some stories are big and dramatic and transformative, but they actually still are should just be yours. Yeah, you know, and it's we've just become obsessed with this raw, real, reveal all of not actually thinking about and caring about our audience in that process, and or even ourselves. I I think yeah. some people tell stories before they're really ready, and they haven't yeah. really done the healing work needed. Yeah, a lot of like I've had so many people come to me within months of losing a loved one, and they're mm-hmm. like, "I want to write a book about this experience." I'm like, "Really, not a book yet." Not yet. No, not yet. And when it comes to speaking, because we get the same thing, like I get people approach me all the time saying, I want to speak. I've just been through this. I've just come out of a mental breakdown. I've just lost somebody. And it's so my guiding principle, and I'm feeling like we're speaking the same language, is until you can speak about it with strength, power, and grace, mm. it's not your story to tell yet. Mm. Right. 
if yeah. you can't stand on a stage and speak into that with strength, power, and grace, then it's actually not your story to tell yet because you can't take the audience out the other side. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that really circling back to my beginning, middle, and end. I was just uh, thinking that. Yeah. Will come with a beginning and maybe a middle, but there's no end yet. I'm like, that's not yeah. a book yet. There's no end. Yeah. We're ready for that story. Yeah. I remember years ago, I wanted to write a book back in 2006 or so. I just sold a business to a stock exchange sister company, thinking about what I was going to do next. And I said to my then husband, and I swear he didn't become my ex-husband because of this response, but I said to my then husband, I said, I think I want to write a book. And I'd just been through three major traumatic experiences over a period of about four years, including losing my 2IC by suicide. And so really big experiences. And I was like, and people always really amazed that I was still standing upright and things like that. And I said to him, I think I want to write a book. And he actually said to me, and I hated him at the time for it, but he said, you can't write a book yet. You don't have the whole story yet. Mm. And I was like, and like, but he just, you know, man style, dropped it like that right. and walked out of the room. <laughs> so I was like, I spent years like furious at him for that one comment. But now like that I've actually done the work and as you say, the healing and work through that story, I'm like, he was so right. Like I would have been in the middle of trauma, taking people into the mess with me with no way out, you know, right. but yeah, but he just dropped those two senses. And I was like, for years, I was like, how dare you? How dare you rip my dreams away? But it's so true in hindsight. <laughs> so when you work yeah. out why this matters to them, why they're doing it, what's the next part of your process? Where do you take them from there? Well, then we focus on, instead of going into what's the book about, who is the book for? So yeah. we go into audience next and really diving deep of where is that person? Because usually like my author will have a message that they know is true. So it could be like your weight doesn't determine your value mm -hmm. and they are a health coach and a wellness coach and they want people to know like you're lovable no matter what size you're at. But who is buying a book that says you're lovable no matter what size you're at? I would like to read a book how, about how I have nothing to fix. Yeah. Let me quick run to the bookstore and pick up a book about how I don't need to do anything. Yeah. It's just not how buyers think. Respond, yeah. They're not like, let me get a book about nothing saying I have no problem. Yeah. So I'm like anyone who already thinks I'm perfect at any size, doesn't need your book. They're not going to read your book. They're not going to hire you. They don't need your wellness coaching. They've already figured that out. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. So the message that you have, the things that your clients would say after they've worked with you. So for instance, your clients might say, a great speech has nothing to do with the script. Yeah. They know that they've worked with you. They got to the other side and they're like a great story or I'll, I'll do mine. One of the things I say to my clients all the time is you have to become the person who wrote the book before you write it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could write a book called become the person who wrote the book before you write it, but no one say that doesn't make any sense until after you work with me. And then you're like, yeah, oh, you have to become the person who wrote the book before you yeah. write it. But like, yeah. So usually our messaging, the title that people want to give to their book is the result of coaching with you. 
yeah, rather than the problem that they're looking to fix in the, the first place. Problem they're looking to fix in the first place. And so we have to identify who's that person. So yeah. people will tell me like, oh, it's somebody who has done a lot of spiritual growth and she's taken a lot of training courses and she goes to a lot of events and she's a younger version of me. And so I'm like, oh, did you buy this at the beginning? What were you buying? They're like, no, this isn't what I bought. I'm like, what were you buying? (laughs) Right. Why would they do something different? So it is probably not a younger version of you. That's what everyone thinks their audience is. Uh, Your version of me? I'm like, it can be. It's probably not, but it can be. Let's talk about what did you buy? What books were you buying? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really invaluable point. Like if it's, that's a qualifier as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, and quite often you're not speaking to who you were or writing to who you were, a younger version of you, because the younger version of you didn't know this existed. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. So then where do we go from there? So then we plot and I like to use, I like to use a big window and post-it notes. Post-it notes. Oh my goodness. We are, we are actually sisters from another mother because like literally it is really, people walk out of my rooms. I won't hire a room to work in unless it's got floor to ceiling glass. Yeah. That's what I have right here. And we're not allowed, we're not allowed to use pastel post-it notes. They have to be fluorescent. I've thrown people's pastel post-it notes in the bin. (laughs) It's very funny. Yeah. I don't know what those pastel are. They look like the 80s to me. Yeah. They look, they're like the 80s and the bubble skirts. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we do an exercise, which I would love you to tell me the neuroscience behind, but we do an exercise called book basket. Yeah. And so the first thing, when, when I do this in person, which I sometimes do this in person, when I have people do it virtually, I tell them to do it, but we find a basket, a shoebox but we find something physical and we actually decorate it. And this sounds really weird or like frivolous or like an arts and crafts project, but what I'm doing is a meditation. So I get yeah. people ripped up. Present. So I do pre, I pre-rip stuff that you would put on a vision board on your magazine. So you don't have to do any cutting out. And then you just cover a shoebox basically with the vision board for your book. And as we're doing this, my goal is to get you to stop obsessing about how to make your book good. Yeah, I love this. Really focusing, this this is step four in my difference process. It's envision your success. And then what we do, I call it the book basket. There's no way to do it wrong. You can print things off, like you can print off blog posts you've done. You can write new things on post-it notes that you want to write. You could put a bottle of protein powder in the book. Anything you think might go in the book, there's no rules. We're just filling your book basket. Mm -hmm. We go through and we turn your book basket into what I call slugs. So a slug is like the story about protein powder. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it's just a few, I don't write the whole story. I just say the story about protein powder. Another one I might say blog post from February, 2019, whatever flag. Yeah. Yeah. And so we turn everything into these slugs, which are just like a few words. And then we just stick them up on a wall. Yeah. And we start arranging them. We just start sequencing them. them. 
Yeah. Sequencing them. And those become our chapters. Yeah. And then there's a pile that's left over. These yeah. don't go any. Sometimes we're missing some and we'll write a few extras. And the pile that's left over, we call that book two. Yeah. We keep them. We can throw them well, in the book basket. Putting the speeches together, we call them your content bites. So content. they become blogs yeah. or videos or whatever, but they you don't lose them. We just, they're not relevant to this particular thing. They're not going to be in the book, but that's what I tell people. You can make it a blog post. You can make it social media content. It can be book number two. We're yeah. not going to use these. So a book, what I need to get started is about 30 slugs minimum, 100 yeah. max. Love so that. 30 to 100 slugs. Yeah, I love that a lot. When you talk about the glass walls, so one of the things why you do it on glass is because you actually are seeing beyond. So when you do it against a fixed wall, it's like, and this came to me, it was part neuroscience and also I worked with the gold medal Olympian alumni at Australian Institute of Sport for a while with storytelling. And they were telling a story about the difference between a gold medalist and a silver medalist in swimming, which is quite often like 0.0001 of a second but it's actually mm-hmm. the gold medalist swims through the wall and the silver medalist swims to the wall, right? Yeah. So the gold medalist doesn't stop until they literally feel themselves smash the wall. And neuroscience also says we have to give ourselves cues to think of beyond what we already know. So the glass is part of that. The other thing is, is that if we actually start those post-it notes above eye height, so as far as you can reach up with your arms, that actually puts you, when you're looking up, it puts you into the recall zone and you get more out. That's interesting. That makes sense too with like in hypnosis, how you'll expand your peripheral vision by sort of like rolling your eyes up. So that actually makes perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where we go next. And that gets us to outlines and each. um, So a book is roughly, let's say 50,000 words, somewhere between Mm -hmm. 30,000 words. So each slug, what I tell people is, could you talk for two to three minutes on that. Could you tell me the story about the protein shake for two to three minutes? And that will get you two to three minutes is roughly a thousand words. Yep. So to record a chapter takes about 18 minutes. People think it takes forever to write a book. If you have five slugs and you can talk for three to four minutes about each slug, you have a whole chapter. So we just take the slugs, each chapter will be three to 10 slugs, and we turn them into questions. And then your job, and you can do it voice to text, or you can type a thousand Mm -hmm. words, but your job is to just answer the question. And the question might be, tell me the story about the protein shake. Love this. Why was the Harvard Business Review study important? Yeah. I really love this because it it just, because when you ask questions, as we know, like my favorite way of speaking is actually not being on a big stage. My favorite way of speaking is hosting a fireside chat and having questions backwards and forwards. And so I love that because it's inquiry. And when we get curious, we actually bring more through and it's more in landing with the people that we're speaking to. So I just love that process. Angela, I could talk to you all day. We are like almost like, I think we're actually already over time, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it's it's not a problem. And I know that the audiences are going to love what we brought to the table. For those playing along at home, Angela is actually going to be doing some masterclasses with my clients, which is going to be sensational. Or very boring, since apparently we say the same things. (laughs) But what I would love to know is, actually, we were going to talk about the other side of your story as well, but I'd love to know, are you happy to come back in the new year or do a complete episode on that? that Yeah, I'd love to. I would love to. 
yeah, I don't think I've done that yet in this series, but I just feel like there's been so much with this that is so invaluable, but then also too, so that's about what makes a great story. But then I think if we share this phenomenal other part of your story as an actual, just a story sharing episode would be really powerful as well. Would you be happy to do that? I would be. And like, let me just give a little teaser on that. I mentioned that when I was about to turn 40, I finally started my business and stopped seeing writing books as dog walking. I was like, oh, maybe I actually have a skill here. And that came about through Martha Beck and kind of clients finding me. But another thing that happened at that time is I was diagnosed at 39 with autism and being able to understand some missing pieces and understand why certain things had happened the way they had in my life. And maybe even understanding why I had a special interest so young and why I was hyperlexic, that all came together. And I was able to just like, I don't know, let my freak flag fly, accept who I was and lean more fully into that instead of trying to be I don't know, a personal injury attorney. Yeah, (laughs) which is kind of like the complete opposite. (laughs) But the things we do when we think we have to grow up. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm trying to fix myself and knowing who you actually are in that journey of self-discovery, I think is so important to having your authentic voice show through. And there may be something to fix. There may not be something, I don't know, whatever. But knowing you are, that's what we want more of. We want to see more of you. We want to read more of you, not you trying to be a personal injury attorney. Yeah, (laughs) which is just, I'm sorry, I'm laughing and I probably shouldn't, but it just is such not, it's so not a fit. It's just so not a fit. But I think it's really important as well. I was diagnosed myself with complex PTSD in the last two years. And at first I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. It's kind of cute. How cute are you? Like literally was my response to the psychologist. And then I started to get to a point where it's like, oh, no, complex PTSD is actually a thing. And then I was like, oh, it's my thing. But I didn't find it to be onerous. I found it liberating because all of a sudden these things made sense. And I think one of the things, and I'd love to talk about this with you when we come back together next year, I think one of the things that I realized was it was just a data point, not a label, right? It just, it really, for me, it was like, oh, all of a sudden all these things make sense And I don't have to change who I am. I just now have access to some better strategies and some better understanding of how I show up in the world. Having said that, I am not the type of PTSD that is in deep depression. I'm the type of PTSD that literally my brain has had a snap, right? So Mm -hmm. those that go into deep depression, I'm not diminishing that experience at all. But for me, understanding, even understanding that there was two different types, right? Because I actually said to myself, I'm not really that depressed. You guys know, because you don't have that type of PTSD. I was like, what? (laughs) So I think the data points and the more we can share these stories about the reality of it's not a sentence, it's not a label, it simply gives us. I think people get really scared about diagnosis and there are some reasons too. Like when it comes to there are some reasons why you might want to or not want to get officially diagnosed. Like that's a whole thing, but it's like, just like the number in the bank account only means what you make it be for somebody, you know, 200 million dollars could be a lot of money for somebody like, you know, the guy whose crypto exchange just went broke. He was worth 16 billion. Now 200 million sounds like nothing. If I had yeah. 200 million in the bank, it would feel like a lot. So yeah, same thing with like a diagnosis, like the label itself only means 
what you want to make it mean, but understanding yourself better, I think is always a journey worth taking. If for no other reason than it makes you a better writer, a better speaker, a better yeah. parent, a better communicator in whatever you're doing. So absolutely. Angela, thank you so much for your time. It has been absolute pleasure. And I cannot wait for installment two somewhere in the first quarter of next year. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, raise 1000 voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember you were born to raise your voice.